Okay, to uh, the Word. If you open to Genesis 12, we'll pick up where we left off last week. If you're a guest with us, we've been, we're methodically walking through the story of Scripture. So this is our fifth week in a 66-week walk from the beginning to the end of the Bible. There's 66 books, so we're reading through the Bible Monday through Friday, and then we're preaching through the story on Sundays. So we're, uh, we're in uh, the very beginning of the story. And last week we talked about the heart of uh, the, the beginning of the story with Abram in Genesis 12. It begins with a promise. And we're going to take some time thinking about the nature of this promise. And today we're going to connect it to faith, which I'm so grateful that you, we read in John. So this week our reading was the first half of John. Uh, it pairs so nicely with this thinking about faith. So hopefully as we read today, or we listen today, some of your reading will sort of come back to life again for you. The subject of faith, particularly as we pick up in the early part of the Bible, is a little bit of a tricky one because uh, if you've been raised in the church or if you're religious, you're kind of familiar with religion, we've talked about faith a lot. Uh, so I'm just... I guess what I want to say is I assume you're coming with categories of what faith uh, means, what it means when we talk about faith. And some part of me wishes we could sort of forget all of that and start over again, uh, just to maybe allow it to live as it does in the story. So I know you can't forget what you've learned, nor do we really want to ultimately, but that to whatever degree today we can relax a little bit, on our thinking about faith uh, so that maybe some of these early expressions of it can, can make their imprint. That would be great. So to do that, I'm going to try to give a unique definition of faith, or I'm going to try to approach faith from a somewhat unique perspective uh, just to get us thinking a little bit differently, and it, it hopefully will thread into the account. I would like you to think about faith as a force similar to the force of gravity. And by that I mean that faith is something that exists in relationship between a person and uh, a particular object or, or other person or even an institution. It's, faith is something that exists in relationship to two ideas, right? So I uh, see something in my life and then I, I express a certain kind of degree of faith towards it for one reason or another. And you'll see this, and it's not always one person to another. It could be all sorts of things. You know, someone after church this morning said, when I drive through an intersection, I have faith that people actually listen to the red light, right? So we, we, we live our lives in relationship. Now, you're gonna say, well, that's, that's kind of a low view of faith. Actually, that's my goal. My goal in talking about it this way is to remind us that faith is not really a religious concept. It's a human concept. And we're all exercising it all the time. Everybody here is a person of faith. It's something that we regularly do. And you'll do it with things like stoplights, but you could do it with institutions. Uh, the U.S. Marines, they're the few, the proud, the faithful. right? They're, institutionally, they've codified it codified faith is sort of central to their identity of we, we don't leave anyone behind, we back one another up, 
We uh, were faithful to the end with each other. And that actually has become sort of a backbone of the identity of what it means to be a Marine. The semper fi, ever faithful or always faithful, is a big part of that. That's not religious, but it is meaningful. You can have uh, faiths, uh, different expressions of faith that are competitive meaning you have to choose. Sometimes a person will say, my heart is torn between these two things. This idea offers to give me this, but this idea offers to give me that, and your heart's divided. You can have faith that is compounding, meaning uh, it contributes to itself. Uh, it, your faith increases the more something's added. Um, there's all, all sorts of ways you can think about it. In gravity, the force of gravity is a relationship of mass, right? The bigger, the greater the mass, the greater the, the sense of gravity. In faith, faith is measured uh, in terms of what something has to offer you. Faith is measured as the prospect that a person or a thing or idea, the prospect of what it has to offer us. So people, each one of us, we have unmet needs and wants in our life, desires, things we, we long for. Some of these we know, some of these we don't really know, some of these are really hiding in the background of who we are, but they're there nonetheless. And when something in our life, a person in our life comes by, and they present the prospect of meeting one of those needs, that's, that's sort of the, the way faith is measured, is us extending ourselves towards something and the prospect of getting what we long for back. You could think of that as faith. Here's some other words that I'd use uh, that we would hear in our vernacular that really are kind of faith words. Words like devotion, someone's really devoted to something. Trust, committed to, influenced by. If anything influences you, likely you've placed a lot of trust in that thing. Dependent upon. Those are words we use all the time, phrases we use all the time that fit in rudimentary faith language. It's not just religious belief. And I, again, I want to make it clear before we go into the word that everyone is living by faith in some way. It's just in what have we placed our faith? Okay, with that, we can now look at Genesis 12. I'm going to read the promise again in the beginning of the chapter, 1 through 3. We'll take a brief moment on the promise, and then we'll start to think about the faith of Abram. So here's the grand promise that, you might say, ignites the story of the Lord's redemption. Chapter 12, Genesis 12, verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country in your kindred, in your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in that promise, the Lord says to Abram, I want you to leave these things and I will give you these things. Now just think about those in particular. For example, Abram, leave the land that you presently possess. Leave the region that you've, in which you've presently settled. And at the prospect of getting other land. I want us to appreciate Abram is leaving behind something that's in his possession. At least in some sense of the word. I belong to this region in this area. He's leaving behind some sense of possession at the prospect of a different kind of possession. Same with his name. Leave behind, if you think most generally, your name, your identity, your sense of personhood. We all sort of you know, you, you are who you are based upon how you fit in a community. If you just tomorrow were pulled out of that and you had to start over somewhere, a little bit of yourself would be lost. Abram, leave your sense of self. Leave how you fit in your family and how you fit in your region, how you fit in your towns and villages. Leave the way everybody knows you at the prospect of me building a new name for you. That's the promise. At least it's the promises Abram would have molded over in his mind. And here's this last one. Abram, if you come with me, right? I, the Lord is offering him the prospect of becoming a fruitful nation, even though Abram is getting old and his wife Sarai is barren. So there's that idea here also, that his current situation, he's... Uh, old and getting older, and his wife is barren. And the Lord is saying, if you come with me, I offer you the prospect of, you'll be a nation. Now, what I want us to appreciate about this, uh, these prospects is that the Lord is, seems intent on bringing Abram back to zero and starting over again. You see that? It's worth thinking about. The way the promise works, it seems as though the Lord doesn't want whatever he's going to do to be additive to the life Abram has already made. But rather... He wants to neutralize whatever Abraham is, get it back to zero, and start fresh. It's not as though he wants to use uh, Abram's land and his family to leverage for the greatness of God's kingdom. It's not that. He doesn't want that. Actually, Abram, come away from your family. It's not that he wants to sort of lean on the wealth and the land uh, that Abraham has already accumulated. No, it's not that. Actually, come on. Let's bring you back to zero. And the pros- I want the prospect of, one, I'm going, of what I'm going to do to be unmistakably what I did for you. That seems to be at the heart of the promise. Bring it to zero and build it over again. So this I know, it seems pretty obvious. Now imagine, I just want you to imagine for yourself that God came to you with a fairly 
significant prospect of what he might did, but in order to receive it, you had to be brought back to zero. Think about that for a second. It helps us appreciate Abram a little bit. Sell your house, leave your people, leave your job, leave the town you understand, the place you know you know where to go eat, you know how to get around, all those things that make us feel safe. Leave all of that. Leave all of it. Merely on the prospect that the Lord will give it back to you in a pretty remarkable way. I suspect, and I'm going to say it this way because I think one of the best ways to honor the characters in the Bible is to think of them as people like yourselves, ourselves. But I suspect what is really in the mind, what really moves Abram is the notion of going from barren to a nation. Like my wife and I have zero potential in this present life of giving birth. Zero potential. It's nearly impossible and getting more impossible every day. But if we follow after the Lord, it sounds like he's promising to give that. My, just my hunch would be that, uh, you know, faith responds to these unmet needs. The prospect of having deep yearnings met in our lives. That's often where we extend faith. So my hunch is, is that maybe what is causing Abraham to let go of so many other things is the prospect that the Lord might give him the one thing he can't have in his current setting. Maybe. Either way, I think it's important to simply appreciate that at the prospect of what God said he'd do, Abraham left so much. I think that is uh, important. In a moment we're going to talk about Abraham's faithlessness. So at least, at least before we do that, let's give about a few seconds of like, good job, Abraham, for leaving so much of the prospect, only at the prospect. Okay, so let's talk about his faithlessness. In the story of Genesis, there's this challenge that kind of comes before us. So if you read one story of Abraham and you go, wow, that's pretty good. And then right, it seems almost on the same page, if not right on the other side of the page, is an account that's very, very troubling. Like, why did he do that? That's, that doesn't seem so... Why do we call him faithful? If any of you read the book of Genesis in your Route 66 and you walked away going, he's not as faithful as I thought he was. I, I want you to appreciate, like, then you, then you read well to come to that. So with Abraham, you see some faith, but you see a fair amount of faithlessness. And they seem connected to each other. They seem not that far away. Let me, let me, let's give you an example. And just in this example, what I want to say is, is there's a pattern, by the way, in the book of Genesis where you'll have an account of Abram and you'll be like, wow, that's really, really faithful. And then right on the heels of it is one of faithlessness. It's like, I can't think well of this guy for five minutes before the, the very next story shows up. It's almost as though the writer wants you to notice. Here's a good example. In Genesis 12, the promise comes in one through three. 
Then the obedience of Abram comes in four through nine. He does get up and leave. He leaves everything behind, goes to the land that God shows him. So by the end of nine, you're like, wow, Abraham is faithful. And then you get to verse 10. Let me read in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with a great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is it you have done to me? Why did you tell me that she was your wife? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. You see how you get this faithful story and then this faithless story? It happens again in chapter 15. In 15, the Lord's going to visit Abraham and say, Abraham, you're blessed. And Abraham's going to go, Lord, I don't feel blessed. I feel not blessed. Because I'm old, I don't have a son, Lord. And I'm about to die. And when I die, everything that I have is going to go to my head servant, Eliezer. Like, what kind of lineage is that? I don't feel like a nation, Lord. And the Lord says to him, listen, Abraham. I am going to physically bless you from your very body is going to come the stars of the sky, like the sand of the seashores. I'm going to make a great nation out of you and it's going to come out of you. Don't be afraid. And then it's going to say this, and Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's an important passage in the Bible. A lot of the biblical writers make a big deal about it. It's this real moment of Abram responding to the Lord. Yes, Lord. And I trust in you. Abram, trust in the Lord. And the rest of 15 is this sanctified covenant making of the Lord where he impresses upon Abram the significance of what he's promised. It's a lot of very important detail about the promise. And God speaks very intimately to Abram. It's like, this is a faithful moment. And you know what Genesis 16 is? Hagar and Ishmael. Like the next page, the next sentence. After this faithful moment, Abram's wife, Sarai, says, here, take my maidservant, Hagar, for yourself. Maybe then you can, we can have it. Maybe then we can jumpstart this nation God's been talking about. And it's this tragic, faithless story. Later on in the book of Genesis, the Lord's going to visit Abram. He's going to Abraham now. He's going to visit Abraham. And he's going to say, listen, Abraham. Abraham is 99 when this visit happens. 99 with no son. And the Lord's going to visit him in the form of a person, sit down across the dinner table and say, hey, when I come back a year from now, Sarah's going to have a baby in her arms. It's this bold moment. This big prediction. With, within the year, 
Your wife is going to be with child. I think the whole visit, by the way, has Sarah's ears in mind more than Abram's. But nonetheless, it's this really beautiful moment where God visits and then there's this long discussion about Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't have to spend time there. But there's this big visit. This, a lot of exchange of faith happens there. And you know what the very next story is? It's Abram, Abraham going to, to the town where Abimelech is, getting nervous and telling Sarah to say, once again, she's his sister. And Abimelech takes her again. In the very year, just think of the stakes here. In the very year that Sarah is supposed to be pregnant with Isaac, Abraham allows her into another man's bedroom. Can you imagine the trouble that would come out of that? We already have an entire religious tradition that comes from Ishmael. Do we not want another one? Can you imagine the headache we would have caused the Lord? It, how important it is to appreciate that the child that is going to come from Sarah is from Abraham and no one else. And in, inside of the year that God promises to give her a child, Abraham says, she's my sister. Faithless. These faithless moments. Now, before we deal with uh, why exactly, I want to offer just a little bit of context so that maybe we don't judge as hard. I'm not trying to make excuses for Abraham, but I do want us to appreciate at least if he is a person like us, maybe we can, uh, if we understand his world a little bit, we can understand his fear a little better. Uh, when Abraham leaves his parents' family's land to come to the land that God will show, he, in, he enters into a very wild environment. And the more I study the Old Testament, the more I realize this is why clans stuck together. You don't leave the clan because if you're by yourself, you are not safe. Here's a passage, by the way. This passage comes out of Genesis 20, that affair with Abimelech, but I want you to appreciate what's happening, okay? So this is the part in the story with Abimelech. It's similar to where Pharaoh said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why didn't you, why did you say she was your sister, okay? This is the place where Abimelech says the same thing. And, and I want you to hear what verse 11, Abraham's defense. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife, okay? That's his thinking. He's walking around the land of Canaan saying, these are godless, wicked people. I don't stand a chance here. It's the first idea. And then in verse 13, listen to what he says. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Do you realize this was a standing contract between Abraham and his wife? essentially from the moment they left home. But here's the notion. Abraham is thinking, when we go into these villages, your fate is already sealed, Sarah. You're going to be taken. My only hope for life is that they think I'm your brother. If they think I'm your husband. 
I'm in the way. That's the world in which they live. And by the way, it's worth appreciating, this is exactly what happens. He goes into Egypt, the princes of Pharaoh say, hey, Pharaoh, there's another, one, another beautiful woman's come to town. He says, bring her on over. He goes into the village of Abimelech. Abimelech says, she's pretty, I'll take her. So there's, it's not like it's wholly unfounded. Then we have stories like Sodom and Gomorrah in the mix of all of this thing, which is just makes the whole thing, you realize this is a really a dark land, a very dark and difficult place. We get a story a little bit later in Genesis where one of Jacob's, Jacob's only daughter, in fact, and Jacob has many sons. He has one daughter, Dinah. She's out in a field. A man from a nearby town sees her. His name is Shechem. He goes out to the field and he rapes her. And then, and I'm saying this so that you can build a picture of the world in which they live. This man Shechem goes home and says to his dad, dad, you know that girl that I raped today? I think I want her for my wife. Can you go get her for me? Can you go to her dad? Imagine this. Can you go to her dad and say, yeah, my son, the one who raped your wife or your daughter on Wednesday, he really likes her. How can we make this work? That that's the custom. That's what happens before the brothers intervene. So Abraham is behaving in a faithless way, but he's behaving in a world of legitimate fear. And I want us to think about that. What is going on here? We see some faith but then we see a lot of faithless. And oddly enough, in nearly every case, Abraham comes out on the back end blessed. When he leaves Egypt, he's got more stuff. When he leaves Abimelech, he's got more stuff. In fact, in both cases when he leaves, the people, whether it's Pharaoh or Abimelech, the people there have a fear of Abraham because of his God. Abraham, when even when he behaves faithlessly, he comes out blessed. Think about that. This, by the way, is not an accident of the story. It's as though the writer wants you to see this. So what is going on? Here's what I think is happening. God is trying, God is teaching Abram over Abraham's life. God is teaching him to be faithful by showing himself faithful. You have Abram who had just enough faith to step out into the dark at the prospect of a promise being fulfilled, okay? So there's this, this call from the Lord there's this step of a, you might just say Abram had the faith of a mustard seed, right? This little bit of faith. And he steps towards the Lord's promise initially, but the moment he gets into the wild world where real fear, right? The reality, the reality of the life in the promise, which if you've been with Christ, you understand this. The reality of the life in the promise of God is not as easy as it maybe sounded when you heard the call. So Abram responds to the call, but when he ends up in the reality of the promise, he proves himself faithless 
And in that, the Lord demonstrates himself entirely faithful. And that is how the Lord teaches Abraham faith. You have to realize, faith is a relationship we have with someone or or something, right? So if we're going to extend faith to it, more and more faith to it, there's a need for it for this idea or this person to begin to show themselves as reliable, increasingly reliable, particularly in areas where we have significant fears or we didn't think, I didn't think that the Lord was able to do that. Oh, he is able to do that. There's things, I just don't know if the Lord was really paying attention to me. Oh, he is paying attention to me. So you have throughout Abraham's life, this reality that time and again, when Abraham shows himself faithless, the Lord nonetheless shows himself to be entirely faithful reliable, in the hopes that one day Abraham will have real faith. And I would assert to you, this is simply how it works. What he's done to Abraham, he does with us. Because his goal, the Lord's goal is not to call people with an infant, an infant's faith into a world and then give them everything in front of them to keep their faith infantile. The goal of the Lord is to call you into the wild, barren world of his promise and for you to stand in peace. That's his goal. His goal is, despite what's going on around, that you can rest, you can release expectations you once have, You can let agendas down. You can relax about possessions. You can be at rest and peace about God's timing. You can do all of those things because because over the course of your life, you've said, even when I'm faithless, God has proven himself faithful. God has proven himself entirely reliable. God has never forgotten me. God has never abandoned me, right? So one difficulty comes, another difficulty comes, and it's slowly what the Lord does is cultivate in us a sense of his enduring Faithfulness. And you know what happens when you believe in an enduringly faithful the Lord? You become faithful. His faithfulness is the root of our faith. Here's the catch 22 of this, which maybe some of you have beat me to this. If God is going to build him, you know, going to build your faith, by showing himself faithful, do you know what that means for you? It means testing. The only way the Lord can build your faith by showing himself faithful is to put you in places where you really need faith. We call those places testing. In a lot of cases, we're going to fail, right? We're going to, like Abraham, we're going to falter. We're going to falter. The Lord's going to be faithful. And then there may be learning after that. I used to think, when I came to the section in the scripture about the testing of my faith, I heard evaluation. I think that's grade school in me. If there's a test, I'm being evaluated. This is not the story. This is where I wish we could start over again. This is not the story of Abraham. Abraham is not being evaluated in this story. God promised Abraham. Abraham stepped in God's direction. And now 
It's in the acceptance of the promise of the Lord that the Lord begins to put difficulty in Abraham's way of which many times he fails so that eventually he follows. In other words, these testings that are on the way to all the pe- anybody of faith, you can expect to be tested, not evaluated. You are in the acceptance of God receiving some sort of trial or hardship so that eventually you realize even here the Lord also is faithful. Despite what I once thought, the Lord has proven himself once again to be reliable. Right? How can he do that unless he brings you to the very places where you don't think the Lord's reliable or where you think something else is more reliable? But it's not happening. It's, the question is not, are you still in or out? Or let's see if you make it to the next level. The question, it's in the acceptance of God that you get these tests to make you faithful. Faith is fashioned in our troubled act of following. That's how God builds it. John 6 this week in our reading. There are people asking, hey, what are we supposed to do? And this is how Jesus replies, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. He says, you want to know what you should do? You should extend faith to this man. Extend faith to Jesus Christ in the prospect that he's the answer to your question. That's what the Lord wants. Step in his direction. And, 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 and you'll, you'll see throughout the ministry of Jesus, right? There's one day, you know, Jesus is going to spend his whole ministry kind of plowing and planting moments of faith in the lives of the disciples. His whole ministry, one thing after another, they're going to trip and falter. He's going to get them back up. They're not going to understand. He's going to explain it. He's one thing after another. He's going to sort of work faith out. And then one day he's put to death. And boy, do they falter. They just prove themselves faithless before the rooster crows three times. They've shown themselves to be faithless. And it's okay. Jesus comes back, he rises from the dead, and he brings them right back to himself. Even in death, I am reliable. In all things, Jesus is reliable. This is what I think is meant in the word of God when, he, when Jesus says, like, to have just a tiny faith, the faith of a mustard seed. Boy, if you just had that, God could do so much. That, that, there's something mysterious about that, that with a mustard seed, he could move a mountain. I why just a little bit? What the Lord is saying to you is all he wants from you, all he demands from you is in light of his promise that you step in his direction. He's not saying at that point the evaluation begins. It's not that. At that point, he's going to begin to put you, invite you into the wild world of his promise where you're going to trip and falter and fail and stumble and make mistakes. And each time, you know what? You're going to get back up and realize, but the Lord has not failed me. But the Lord is yet reliable. The Lord has never, ever let you down. And as you kind of walk through this life and you're sort of, not so great way. Slowly you begin to think the Lord is in fact enduringly faithful. 
And that's how he builds faith in you. I'll close with this passage. This passage is from 2 Timothy. It's just, the more you, I'm convinced all of the writers of Scripture seem to have learned this to be so central to their life. If we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Your life is a life where the Lord is being faithful to you because of promise he gave. And in doing so, he'll make us faithful. Let's pray. Lord, this faith which is present in Genesis is present in, in John. The fact that your promise would be so close to the regular practice of faith, Lord. I pray that we see that not just today, but throughout the word of God and throughout our own lives, that you are cultivating faithfulness in us, Lord. Not just when we succeed, but even in our failure by showing yourself true. I pray, Lord, that in our lives that we would take note of your reliability so that when we come to another unfamiliar fear, another moment where we have forgotten or do not, didn't know that you had supremacy, Lord, that in those places too, we, we would say, we're going to trust that even here, you are trustworthy. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.